0: Uh, My name is, wait.
1: Your name is Isaac Fitzgerald.
0: My name is Isaac (laughs) Fitzgerald. (laughs) My name is Summer Ann Burton.
1: And I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. And this
0: is our podcast, The Tell Show.
1: We have incredible guests on today. I'm so honored, thrilled, just wonderful, wonderful people. People who have made history.
0: It's true. Our guests are going to be Edith Windsor and Roberta Kaplan, the plaintiff and attorney who brought the lawsuit against the federal government that ended up leading to marriage equality.
1: Yeah, their Supreme Court victory in 2013 was a landmark case that changed the government's definition of marriage. Um, They're also just incredible people. Edie is like the best dressed woman in New York City. (laughs) And that's saying something. It's
0: true. It's true. Um, So we're going to talk with them about the theme of coming out.
1: And all the different variations and what that can mean. Do you have any good coming out (laughs) stories, Summer Ann?
0: Well, um, I have never had to come out as a gay person. um, And I don't want to appropriate that term too much. But I do think that there are a lot of small ways that we all have to come out to each other about all kinds of things in our lives over the course of them. Um, And I had a really intense experience with that when I was a teenager. Um, So quick background, I was homeschooled, Mm -hmm. um, actually unschooled, which (laughs) is... um, a fancy word meaning that my parents didn't make me do any formal school work unless I wanted to and I found like-minded people online and there was a summer camp that I attended when I was a teenager called not back to school camp um, it was run by this woman named Grace Llewellyn who wrote a book called um, the teenage liberation handbook that encouraged kids to drop out of school That Um, sounds like
1: almost militant. I really recommend it. Say it again?
0: The Teenage Liberation Handbook. All right. Uh, It starts with an introduction about how school is prison and you should leave. (laughs) Um, But I went to the summer camp, and along with these radical ideas about education, they were also into um, a philosophy called radical honesty. And we were very encouraged to come out with all of our secrets. Um, And we had one night of camp where we would do this activity called a power shuffle, um, and they would get <laughs> it's kind of a silly word for something it's, so intense. It
1: sounds like an awesome dance movie. <laughs> yeah. like I'm it just was pick- not
0: it was not an awesome dance move. Oh, okay. And they would get all of us in a room, dim the lights, and have a pre-prepared list of questions. And there was a yes side of the room and a no side of the room. And the questions started off sort of fun, you know, have you ever kissed anyone? Have you ever smoked a cigarette? And you would cross the yes side or stay on the no side, take a look around, and then cross back and start with the next question. Um, And then over the course of the evening, this was about a two-hour activity, the questions got increasingly intense. And they would be questions like, do you believe in God? Do you think that your parents love you? Uh, Have you ever felt pressured into having sex with someone? Have you ever pressured someone into having sex?
1: This is in front of the entire camp.
0: Right. And over and over again, it was just this series of coming outs, you know, coming out as someone who has had an eating disorder in my case, coming out as someone who had hated myself at some time in my life. And as a teenager, you crave that kind of intensity. Mm -hmm. So there was something really compelling about it. We never questioned whether it was a healthy thing for us to be doing. (laughs) Um, And it made you feel really close to everyone. And we really were. I think everyone was honest. You know, looking back, I think that maybe that's it was a little too much Mm. uh, to try to pack into one night. But at the same time, I do also remember it as this kind of freeing experience mm-hmm. to just come out with everything
1: there's a deep there's a joy i mean i myself probably wouldn't be one for radical honesty mm-hmm. but there <laughs> there is this deep joy in in being able to to air your stories or your right. or yourself in that way which is kind of what the show is about it's true that's it's true the more i get to know about you the more i understand <laughs> 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 Full stop. <laughs> so for me, I also, I'm I'm straight, uh, so I also don't want to appropriate coming out.
0: We're very cautious about this. Yep.
1: But my story uh, comes from being raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember at around the age of 12 when I first became aware that it was possible not to believe in God. Right. And I just remember um, that kind of creeping into my brain. And it felt like this very, I was very scared by it. Um, and it was actually my best friend, Liam Patrick Walsh, his mother. And they lived um, in, in the woods of Wendell, Massachusetts. Like they mm-hmm. lived in like this Ewok village style house that like <laughs> they were very she was like an off the grid hippie. And I'll never forget, Jerry was the first person I felt comfortable with. Um, I I don't even know where Liam was. It was just me and Jerry. And I remember kind of saying to her. I think there's a chance that maybe I don't believe in God. And I felt like I was just confessing this, like, you know, something that would maybe damn me for the rest of my life. And Jerry, probably with like a whiskey glass in hand and a, <laughs> a GPC cigarette in the other, just started laughing hysterically. <laughs> and she was like, Fitzy, she would always call me Fitz. Fitzy, Fitzy, I haven't believed in God since I was probably about your age. Tons of people don't believe in God. It's absolutely fine that you don't even believe in God. That's wonderful. You should. You should definitely, it's something you should explore. And I never felt so... Relieved and accepted.
0: If only everyone's coming out stories
1: were <laughs> right, so yeah, so sweet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, our guests today are Robbie Kaplan and Edie Windsor. They're the attorney and plaintiff who uh, brought a landmark case to the Supreme Court, uh, the United States versus Windsor. We're just like honored to have them here. They're it's like a slice of history.
0: Yeah, their Supreme Court victory in 2013. Change the government's definition of marriage. And that ruling paved the way for the 2015 Supreme Court decision, the one that now requires every state to recognize same-sex marriage. Robbie Kaplan's book about the case, Then Comes Marriage, is out now. Edie, Robbie, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure.
2: May I ask one thing? Stop saying same-sex marriage. It's marriage. Okay?
1: Absolutely. Okay.
2: And people who are planning to to dissolve it in some way, okay, are, are taking advantage of that same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Please. Okay, done.
1: For the rest of this okay. conversation, yeah. we are going to say marriage. And for the rest of my life,
3: okay. I am going <laughs> to say you. marriage. Thank marriage you. is okay. marriage and divorce is yeah. divorce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yes.
1: Um, before we get started, we're going to play a quick game of Never Have I Ever. Now, for those not in the know, Never Have I Ever is a game where I state something that I've never done. If somebody else has done that thing, they will ring a bell, like so, indicating that they have done it, and then we'll get a story out of them. Okay. So uh, mine is, never have I ever been married.
2: <laughs> oh, <that's right. laughs> well, I was indeed married for... I Actually, I was engaged for 40 years and married then in uh 2007. But I was engaged in 1967.
0: Was that your first engagement?
2: Uh, no, as a matter of fact. Okay, I was I was engaged to a to a, a very sweet guy, who uh, had been my big brother's best friend, and used to visit my family when he was off on leave during World War II, and I would get very carefully dressed, and um, I was getting older. Okay, but I had a crush on him from when I was eight years old, I think. But uh, we became engaged. And then I, I really discovered that that I was gay and I told him, I I said, honey, we lasted one year, okay? Mm-hmm. And I said, Honey, you deserve more and I need something else. And only recently his widow phoned me when she read about the case. Uh, And I had been worried that his name was around, and I didn't know if his family knew that that he had been married before or -hmm. that his wife knew. And she talked about you all the time. He always loved you. She knew the names of my siblings and, you know, my whole family. And uh, we become real friends.
3: Robbie, you've been married? (laughs) Yep, only once so far. Uh, We just celebrated our 10th year anniversary. Uh, And like Edie, we went to Toronto to get married because then at that point in time, marriage was not permissible in New York and not permissible in most states. Um, And we went to Toronto in 2005 because my wife, Rachel, was pregnant with our son and we thought we should be married before he's born.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, So we got married in Canada and then we came back uh, and had a huge, uh, a big fat Jewish wedding uh, (laughs) at my in-law's house on Rhode Island, uh, which was lovely. Happy anniversary. Thank you. I have never been married.
1: Not once? Nope. Okay. Not
3: once.
0: Okay. I'll do the next one. Um, never have I ever been to jail.
2: Good for you. Just, <laughs> just Isaac for
0: this one. No. Uh,
1: so I've been to jail a couple of times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> surprise. One time was actually, I was in middle school and I was part of the scared straight program and uh, I'd gotten in trouble in high, or, sorry, it was a middle school. And so we were all sent to a, I'm pretty sure high security prison, um, but probably not. They probably told us it was that. <laughs> and then, it, but, but so that's what I remember. We went to this prison um, and they stamped our hands with this black light. Uh, and they said, if this fa- comes off, you won't be able to get out of the prison. Um, but they, they left us in cells and people like talked to us about what it felt like to be in prison and to have a life sentence. And I won't lie, by the end of it, I was very much hoping that that black light thing was there. <laughs> Luckily it was, I didn't get kept at the age of 12. Um, and then the other time was in Washington, D.C., uh, and that was for uh, dur- urinating in public. And that's it. We can leave it there.
0: You weren't scared straight after all. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> it, w- it worked for about a week.
0: I got to send you right back there. The yeah. back on.
1: <laughs> um, do one of you guys want to go?
2: I, well, we just discussed it all the <laughs> way here. And uh, at first I couldn't think except where I hadn't been. But then I realized I never got out of first gear on a motorcycle. <gasps> I- I tried a lot.
1: Tell me and, about how you okay, tried a lot.
2: Okay, the story is, uh, Thea and I, for the first time, were going to spend the summer together in the Hamptons, and she was paying for the rental, and she wanted a motorcycle, so I bought her a motorcycle, she wanted a white motorcycle, so I had to have it custom painted because nobody makes a white motorcycle, and she could drive it just fine. I actually drove out, I think it was 54th Street, there was a, a motorcycle store, and a uh, and I got on the damn thing and I, I went, and I you know I started to go. Okay, I had no idea where the brakes were. Oh no. I was approaching 10th Avenue and screaming, somebody, <laughs> stop this and they finally did. All right. After that, so the cycle was in, in Southampton with us and I got out every morning I said, now, don't be a jackass get on this thing and I would get into first gear and panic. <laughs> out. And I did that maybe for a week in a row, and then I just gave up and said, no, I'm never going to do that.
1: So I used to own a motorcycle when I lived in California, and I did get out of first gear. I would take it from San Francisco down to Santa Cruz. But after doing those trips multiple, like many, many times— I realized that the age of 25 was maybe a little too young and a little irresponsible to have a motorcycle. Um, so I ended up selling it, and I haven't ridden one since. I miss it very much. Nobody else? Motorcycles?
0: No, I've never even ridden on one. I'm, a, I'm not a daredevil. It's not my thing.
3: Uh, never have I ever caught a big enough fish. I love to go fly fishing, and I still haven't gotten a fish quite big enough to satisfy my competition yet. I have.
1: I have as well. I have not. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask uh, how big is big enough?
3: Well, you know, I've done about so big. Okay. But I'd like to get...
0: <laughs>
3: She's stretching out her arms
0: like <laughs> enormously. Right My now. only
2: experience had to do with Thea and I once asked each other very early when, when we were just dating, uh, what's our idea of l- luxury? And hers was, first of all, a covered golf course. But after <laughs> that, she said a, a fish, a thing this big so that she could cook, you know, giant fishes, okay, whole in that. Ooh. And I got one. And uh, okay, and and held on to it, and at some point she stood me up, and then and then came back, and I said, I want you to take this thing and get out of my life. And I, I didn't. Talk <laughs> I mean, to her. When, this is before when you I were dating. To be I, yeah, clear, we were just beginning to date. Oh, okay, and uh, and we didn't we didn't see each other for months, and then she called me in the middle of the night from, used to be a drugstore on the corner. And, uh, okay, and I said, what do you want? <laughs> okay. And then she wouldn't say, and I said, you want to come here? Oh, and that was the beginning
3: of the real dating. Edie, oh, wow. <laughs> whatever happened to the fish thing? Huh? Whatever happened to the fish cooking thing? I don't
2: thing? know. I don't know. Okay. We certainly had it for, you know, and she did cook. Did yeah. she use
3: it to cook fish?
2: She was a, yes, yeah. And she was a wonderful cook. Which why well, I don't cook at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say between your giant fish cooking grill and your white motorcycle, oh, yeah. I really wish I could have hung out with you guys <laughs> a lot. It sounds like we maybe we would have gone to jail you eventually.
2: You are very
0: welcome. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for playing along with us. We appreciate that. Um, and so, I guess starting like you guys don't exactly have a normal attorney and client relationship now. Can you sort of describe that relationship,
3: how it started and and what it's like now well i mean I, I mean one of the truly remarkable things is um, I had never met Edie, I never laid eyes on her, but I knew exactly who she was uh It's because eighteen years before um I had been in my third year of law school and Uh, I I think it'd be fair for me to say that I was kind of a late bloomer in terms of coming out. Uh, I certainly thought about the fact that I might be a lesbian in college and didn't do anything. Um, I waited till the kind of the bitter end of my third year of law school. I finally kind of had the courage to come out. Uh, But it was my bad luck uh, that right when that happened, my parents were coming to visit me. And even worse bad luck, it was gay pride. Uh, and so I lived in this one-room studio on the Upper West Side, and my parents were kind of circling through the traffic to get to my apartment. By the time they got to my apartment, they were in a, quite a state. And my mom started saying, you know, I don't understand what all these people are so proud of, what's with all the rainbows. You know, you can imagine. It's the way mothers talk. And I said, Mom, stop. Uh, and then she said, why? Um, why do you want me to stop? Are you telling me that you're gay? And I said, Yes. And she walked about a foot over it was a small studio, over to the corner of the studio, and literally started banging her head against the wall. Um, let me be clear, this is not really a criticism of my mom. Parents mm-hmm. as a parent, I, I you know, parents do crummy things, and my mom's apologized ten million times for this. But as you can imagine at that time, I was pretty depressed. Mm-hmm. You were 24? Yeah, about 24. And, you know, I'd been this kind of high achiever, straight-A student, kind of, you know, ambitious type. And all of a sudden this hit. And I, I was always afraid that this is what would happen.
1: And what year is this? Sorry.
3: 1991. Okay. So I was living here in New York for the summer. And I went around asking all the people I knew, all the lesbians I knew, uh, I need to see a psychologist who's good at gay issues. That's the way you talked about it, that <laughs> good at gay issues. <laughs> Um, With the air quotes. I always got the same person back. Everyone gave me the same name, and the name they gave me was Thea Spire. So uh, I actually saw Thea, Edie's spouse, of, of four decades, as a patient in 1991 in their apartment, because Thea was already pretty paralyzed from the MS, so she was seeing patients in their living room. Thea was amazing. Truly amazing, Uh, charismatic, confident. She gave me, she really helped me turn my life around. Um, And that was it. I only saw her twice because I moved to Boston. And then fast forward 18 years, I get this call, Edie Windsor. (laughs) I knew exactly who it was because Thea had talked to me about Edie Windsor. And I went into Edie's apartment and I said, it was like coming back to the scene of an accident in a way. All those old emotions came right back to me. And I said to Edie, you got to give me a minute. You know, I've been here before. And then I explained why. So we had a connection even before our connection, which is incredibly yeah. strong. We had this kind of metaphysical connection already.
2: And you must understand, I never knew who any of her patients were. She never let me do her billing, uh, anything like that. So I had no, absolutely no idea.
0: Well You mentioned that the... Uh had talked about Edie, like what was the context for her to be talking about? yeah her so
3: she, you know it's kind of unusual i think i think psychologists generally don't talk to patients and yeah and i'm sure she didn't I, I, look i think yeah. looking back you know thea was a very smart woman incredibly gifted psychologist i was a pretty cynical stubborn person 24 year old at the time and my guess is that thea was convinced that the only way she would be able to persuade me that I could have the life that I wanted to have, which was what was driving my depression at the point at that point in time, was to describe for me her own life. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I remember her telling me she had this this woman Edie Windsor, and they'd been together for so many years. And Edie was a brilliant mathematician, and she'd studied <laughs> at NYU, and she was brilliant on computers. I remember hearing all this, uh, and when I first saw Edie in two thousand nine. I said to Edie, oh, my God, I said, you just don't look the way I imagined you. Because I imagined like a mathematician, like, you know, a slide rule, thick glasses, maybe a flannel shirt. Right. I was like, oh, my God, you know, you are not the way I pictured you in my mind. So
0: Edie, in 1991, when Theo was talking to Robbie about, you know, your marriage, can you sort of tell us what your marriage was like, what your life was like at that time?
2: It it was a marriage. It was a marriage with an incredible amount of love. We were in love with each other for you know literally for forty some years, uh, and uh, and through everything, we never considered that MS was sick. Uh, I mean, as far as we could, it was a major inconvenience, to which she. I, I, well, I will be saying now, uh, you know, she she reinvented herself every year, so we always lived a very rich life. Uh, I'm not allowed to talk about sex.
3: No, you can talk about sex
2: okay. now. Okay. We <laughs> won the case, Edie. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> All uh, the rules are off. I, I wasn't allowed to mention it until <laughs> after the decision. You're yeah. allowed here. Yeah. Okay. And uh, there was a lot of stuff done in uh, in California in making life possible for for people who were invalided okay, wheelchairs, things like that. And so we called somebody to put in ramps for us, and she had all the books, which were then out of print even, okay, and brought them to us. So I'm reading the books, and one of the things it said is, okay, do not give up sex, uh, okay? If you need to put, you know, somebody else to come in and put one of you on top of the other, do that. Do not give it up. And I took it very seriously, okay? Mm-hmm. And what we both did then, okay? And never, I never did give up sex, which, as as he says, we we found intelligent ways, okay, to to make use of the the lifts and okay. Okay,
3: <laughs> we're get, we're <laughs> getting to my limits now. <laughs> <laughs> this That's is fine. That's hey, if you want
2: to
1: That's talk all. more about it afterwards. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, that's as far as I go anyway.
1: <laughs> So, so you guys, so there it is. It's 1991, but you're, you you we, you've, we you've par- had this diagnosis, but you're still living passionately. She's still taking on clients. You're still living this yeah. life, and yeah. she's still being this incredible person in your life who yeah. reinvents herself every year.
2: Yeah, I and I was still working at IBM, uh, so I lied always. And uh, when our wedding appeared in the. In the New York Times, uh, people were called, and we got letters from everybody in the world. I mean, from kids we played with all the way up through everything. But but my IBM people would all call and say, "Edie, you lied to us. I <laughs> <They> had to." <laughs>
3: Edie, when you when you traveled with Thea, do you think the straight couples you would meet understood that you were a lesbian couple? Yes,
2: yes, yeah, it was perfectly clear.
1: The, uh, the when the Times announcement came out, was it was it incredible to get that kind of outpouring of support? That many people reaching out to you?
2: No, it was it was was very sweet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. the life was too good to not. Okay, to, it was already extremely good. So so just added. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, you were engaged for forty years. You were yes. living together. Yes. What did anything change when you got married, or was it really oh, just the okay. formal? Okay, <laughs> okay. I ask
2: everybody who gets married now. Okay. Was it different the next day? Mm-hmm. Okay, no matter how many years people have been together, and the answer is almost always. Very rare is there a no. It's almost always yes, and it's very hard to articulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I uh, there's a thing of me standing when I was picture taken uh, while during our wedding even, and I was saying to Thea, "Well, I you know we're married." I don't know what all this other stuff was, this other 40 years. I guess it was dancing, that's all. Okay, (laughs) Mm. because we did dance all the time.
0: So, Robbie, I guess when you went to see Thea in 1991... Um, She sort of gave you this message of optimism and hope and and this example. How long did that take to sink in when you left the office? You know, the years that followed when you met your wife, was that still resonating?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think the answer is practically speaking, it worked. You Mm -hmm. know, practically speaking, I was able to kind of pull myself up and go on and do my job and move back to New York and, and build a life and ultimately build the life that Thea said I would have. But on the other hand, many years, um, because, uh, I had so much, uh, and I think most gay people did, certainly in my generation, I know in Edie's generation, so much internalized homophobia, mm-hmm. uh, about who I was. And, and to deal with that, uh, I think for any gay person took many, many years, um, I don't even know if I was there fully when I met Rachel, but once I met Rachel, that was kind of the final chapter because I couldn't have stayed with Rachel, uh, and been anything but completely out and and gotten rid of my homophobia. She wouldn't have put mm-hmm. up with it. Mm-hmm. And, and
2: I was not homophobic, okay, but I uh, but I felt that that so many people were, and uh, and I didn't want, for instance, some of the people that I really loved that I worked with. Mm-hmm. I didn't want them to think less of me because of what their attitude was mm-hmm. I never felt I never felt you know wrong what have you okay
3: yeah I agree uh, there was a feeling if you go back to popular culture when I was in college in the late 80s uh, early 90s uh, there was a real and, and a lot of this I think was caught because or exacerbated by the AIDS crisis but there was really kind of a cultural feeling of disgust. And, mm-hmm. I, and I use that word quite literally about gay people. And so even though I never felt disgust about myself or about my relationships or about, you know, what I, you know, what gay people did in the bedroom, um, I knew that other people thought that. Mm-hmm. I, I think in a way that's what Edie's saying. And there's this great fear knowing that other people think that about you.
1: So Edie, what was it like working with Robbie Kaplan on this case?
3: I was just thrilled with it. Uh, I think we yeah. have a mutual admiration, yeah. a mutual love society. Yeah. going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's fair to say, and Edie will, can and will correct me if I get it wrong, but I, I think it's fair to say that uh, we're family at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for gay people, it's always been true historically that gay people kind of make their own families because for many gay people in the past, you know, they were shunned from their families if they came out, and, and there were difficult issues. Uh, so there's kind of this rich tradition of gay people making our own families. But here, you know, we well, we both are close to our families, but on top of that, we have each other. Uh, and it's wonderful. And I don't think, I mean, I, it seems like to me this just wouldn't have
0: been possible without that partnership, with I you believe, without the by other. By the way, I
2: believe that's true. I believe I've said it a hundred times. I don't think I could have done that with anybody else.
3: I don't think we could have won the case with any other clients. So right back at you, Edie. So before we go, we have three
0: questions that we like to ask every guest, um, and we'll ask these of both of you guys. Um, Isaac, do you want to start with the first question?
1: I would love to. Our first question is, what was your last kiss like?
3: My last kiss? I can tell you. We we went to the opera last night, uh, and I came back very late at midnight or so, and I kind of took my shoes off outside my son's bedroom, and I crept into his bedroom, which was very dark, and I, it wasn't, I guess it was, yeah, I kissed him, I kissed him on the back of the neck, and it was about as good as it gets.
2: And I can't tell you. Okay, Okay, it was last night, and I can't tell
3: you.
1: (laughs) Fair enough.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, so our second question, um, when was the last time that you
3: cried? I cried during the opera last night. I was a little embarrassed about it. I kind of had to hi- I didn't want people to see me.
2: <laughs> I don't know it was uh, one of the, the interviews and I don't know which one, but suddenly suddenly fear was very real and there at the moment and and I and I felt myself crying and trying trying very hard not to cry. Uh everyone said well when I watch the film I cry. No question. But I also love it.
1: <laughs> the last question that we ask is what's wrong with you?
3: Oh, God. I mean, we're all works in progress, right, as human beings. So there's so much wrong with me. I I could go on for hours. (laughs) And I'm sure my family could go on with hours. I I think the thing that probably most comes to mind, certainly in my family, and it's obvious I recognize it myself, is I could probably learn to slow down uh, just a little bit. Um, I'm very much kind of goal-oriented and always looking to get, get to the ninth inning and I could probably take some more time to smell the roses. I'm working on it. Fly fishing is helping. Yeah, I'm trying. Although I spend there, I'm worrying about catching a big fish. So. <laughs> right.
1: Oh. Well, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that I'm really happy you got to the ninth inning fast on Windsor versus United, yeah. <laughs> Windsor versus It has
3: advantages sometimes. Right. It's, yeah.
2: What's wrong with me? <laughs> uh, old age is has, okay, I've been saying to doctors for some time, I'm 86. And I've been saying to my doctors for some time, 85 years of aging is a fair time. So there's no justice in my continuing to age. I would like to continue to live, but I would like very much to stop aging. Okay? <laughs> because, <okay. laughs> That's it.
1: <laughs> Thank you guys again so much for all your time and all your courage. Thank, Thank
2: you. you so really much for now. having us. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Next time on the Tell Show, we're going to talk about home. As always, we sent producer Julia Furlon out on the streets to ask people about their homes. So, I'm asking people, what does home mean to you?
3: Home means a place of shelter and uh, solitude, I guess.
0: Uh, home is definitely just where my family is. Home is where there's enough ingredients to make a lot of sandwiches. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I think wherever you feel very safe, comfortable, loved.
1: Like a like a good hug. Like some place like you feel like you belong there and you never really want to leave there. It's gotta be where you find love and show love to other people.
3: Something. Yes, yes, say that, that's adorable.
1: Home for no, home for me is a nice warm bed. <laughs> so where's home for you? In bed? With you. Uh...
0: And, um, what can you do at home that you can't do anywhere else?
2: Well, I can sleep with my cat in my bed.
0: What can I do at home I can't do anywhere else? What can you do? Walk around naked. Right? That Sounds good to me. <laughs> Been able to be in my pajamas for 24 hours a day. Go to the bathroom with the door open. I was going to say bathe, but I guess you can do that anywhere.
1: Home for me is a place where you belong. And so it is a place where, where you just are proud to be who you are and all your imperfections. And people love you for that. It's kind of like home in a car. You get to be, you can sing out loud. Those are the two places where you're like allowed to sing out loud. When you're in your home, you can just be you. The Tell Show is produced by Meg Kramer.
0: With editorial oversight from Jenna Weiss-Berman.
1: And production help from Julia Furlon and Eleanor Kagan.
0: Thanks so much to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios for recording the show. And thanks to Love Inks who composed our wonderful music.
1: You can email us at thetelshow at buzzfeed.com anytime.
0: We'll be back with another episode next week.